It's the My Michelle Live podcast. My Michelle Live Health Watch. She's writing a prescription for hope. Here's Michelle. You're listening to the My Michelle Live family of podcasts, and today is Health Watch where we are talking about the saddest time of the year. In fact, Monday was an anti-holiday that we celebrated Martin Luther King Day. It is also touted as the saddest day of the year. Now, it started kind of as a, a marketing idea, and some researchers said, yeah, no, the third Monday in January is not necessarily any sadder than any other day in this dark, bleak time of the year. But Mondays, people don't like Mondays. The seasonal affective disorder affects people, especially in this time of the year. You're coming down from the holidays. So there's a lot to take into consideration with anxiety and depression. But boom, bring on a pandemic and we are really feeling it. We're having psychotic episodes. We are having fits of anxiety, a bleakness of depression. There is an uptick in addiction among age groups and people groups that we would never have thought of before. The pandemic is relentlessly persisting. And with higher levels of all of these things I mentioned, this is nearly a year since it hit the U.S., and there is this troubling trend fueled not only by the circumstance that we may have mentioned, but also loneliness and isolation. Today, we're going to talk about some of the things we're doing for depression and anxiety that's not working, and it's a problem. We're going to talk about some things medically that you have not considered, and we're not even taking on in Western medicine for the most part. We're also going to talk about some uh, some effect it's having on teens, what you can do emotionally and spiritually to find joy and beauty in the bleakness, and look at the economic problems that have contributed to depression, things that we have not taken into consideration. In fact, our first guest, Casey Mulligan, uh, is with the University of Chicago. He's an economist. He says that 2020 brought an uptick in deaths, not of COVID, just of COVID, but deaths of despair. Casey, thanks for being with us. So does the pandemic have anything to do with what you're finding in the increase in deaths of despair, as you call them? My pleasure. There's been pandemics before, but not one we've dealt with for a long, long time, centuries probably. Um, What I've done is just measured, you know, how how many abnormal deaths have we had and and how many of them are occurring, you know, separate from the COVID disease. There are an abnormal number of deaths in 2020. Many are are COVID, uh, but that that part we know about, but many of them are are not COVID. I can't wait to have better data, but the data I have now allows me to understand the types of people that are involved with these extra deaths. And they're working age people, unlike the COVID, which is primarily elderly. These are working age people, particularly men um, and even young men, late teens, 20s, are having extra deaths. They, 
happened after the pandemic started. So these weren't extra deaths that were happening in February. They were especially noticeable in um, building in May and June and July. And that's kind of like how the pandemic started building on us. Disaster hit, stress starts, the economy tanks, and people fall into despair. It's not the first time, though. It's not completely unprecedented. We experienced this, did we not, in the time of the Great Depression? Yeah, I mean, some other data I've looked at is um, more local data, although there's some fairly national on drug overdoses. So that would be different in the 30s. I think in the 30s it would have been alcohol. Oh, okay. Um, and but you know, chemicals maybe change a bit over time. But there certainly some localities who have released the data already are showing quite a large increase in drug overdoses, and they weren't low before. So we already had an opioid epidemic. Uh, opioid crisis, some people called it, but we have even a higher level of deaths, at least in those localities, um, from drug overdose than we had uh, a year ago. Okay, how big is this problem? How much of an epidemic is the epidemic of despair in comparison to the coronavirus? Yes, among the um, working age people, as best the data can show me, there are more the extra deaths that aren't COVID than there are COVID from the working age people. Now, elderly would be entirely different. Essentially, all their extra deaths sure. would be COVID. But among the working age people, there's somewhat more of the non-COVID deaths. And among the working age men, it's overwhelmingly more. Casey, you're an economist. The economy can hit men a bit harder than women, although in recent years, women are players in the business world and in, on the economic scene. But is it hitting men a bit harder? There is a difference. Although what's surprised some people this time is that previous recessions, you didn't see um, something like drug overdoses changing all that much. The drug overdose problem that it accumulated over decades is kind of a straight line. In the booms and the recession, it just kept going up year after year. Whereas now that this wave of deaths of despair that we saw in 2020 very much coincided with the economic downturn. So there is a bit of a puzzle there and we don't have it solved yet. I think one thing that needs to be looked at, you know, in previous recessions, people lost their job. They didn't have a lot of money to spend. In this recession, there was a lot of money given to people out of work. And I think somebody needs to ask the question, you know, how many drugs can you buy with a $600 unemployment bonus a oh week? <laughs> it's a lot. Um, and maybe some people are doing it. I don't have the data yet, but I think it's a question that needs to be asked. And certainly it's a difference from previous recessions. Casey, one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you is because it seems to be a passion of yours to take what is happening happening in our culture, what is happening politically, socially, and with the pandemic, for example, and seeing how it has an effect on the general population and the economy. You've written a book, You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. Yeah, I mean, I, I give the credit to our elected officials that, that I got to work with. Um, because I'm an academic, I don't report to the people, and that's probably too bad for the people, but they do. Um, and they were very much focused on the pain that people were experiencing, especially those outside of the Washington Beltway. And that pain is contributing as well to some of the despair and frustration in the United States from differing political views, right? 
you know, it, it is a variety. Um, I think the common theme is they feel ignored. They haven't had a voice. Um, their way of life is not recognized, whether it's a tough way of life or not. And in, in some cases it is, but it, it's just not acknowledged or recognized because it's like a different class, different group of people who have been running the government for so many years and, and other institutions, you know, universities and, and major corporations. Ah, so you think that maybe what is contributing or one contributing factor to the divide and despair that we're talking about today? There's no no doubt about that. President Trump and to some degree, Senator Bernie Sanders, they were entrepreneurial and, and being unusual in the Washington, New York area to realize that was going on and to try to corral that into a political movement. Um, and, and President Trump was more successful in doing that. But there are others elsewhere in the world, in, in Brazil, in the United Kingdom. You know, Brexit was a total surprise to everybody except the British. <laughs> the, the British people living out of London, they knew what they felt about this. They knew what lever they were going to pull. Um, but the Londoners had no clue until the uh, votes were counted. It seems like part of this disconnect that people in power have over everyday people is an ex is extended with the COVID lockdown procedures, picking winners, picking losers. Not everybody's voice is being heard. Not everybody seems to matter. So did the government maybe, as we look at it now and look back, go a little far? Yeah, certainly recognizing hindsight. Um, some of us were saying this even as foresight, but now that 2020 is over and we look back to the spring, we didn't need to lock down that much. We didn't need to have kids out of school. We didn't need to have students out of college. And the reason we know that is because we have those things. Toward the end of the year, we had those things going. The pandemic was not worse in November than it was in April. And we've learned how to have a more moderate path. Today, Casey, it's not just about pointing out the problems, but looking forward to some solutions. We're, we've been heading down a path we're at a crossroads where we could get worse. Maybe we could get better. What, what direction do we take to get there, though? The, the path forward, I don't think, is shutting down the voices. I think that's been the inclination in the last week or two. From the beginning, I've always made the analogy with the BlackBerry. If we remember when the BlackBerry came around, wow, it was awesome. We can do mobile email. <laughs> we have that cute little keyboard. And, you know, you couldn't imagine any other way than the BlackBerry, which was so awesome, but it was knocked out very quickly by something even better, which was the iPhone. And I think the same thing will be true. I'm optimistic in terms of getting people's voices heard. We had we had Trump, we had a Bernie Sanders. I think there'll be new versions, new and improved versions that'll be even better. There are entrepreneurs out there in politics who will say, how can I draw on what was done well and improve on it uh, and, and be successful? So... I'm pretty optimistic on that. I love that. We need a little bit of optimism, and I do appreciate it. A great conversation, good things to keep in mind as we try to move forward in our nation. And anywhere you are listening to me, you can connect. Uh, just click on the link, You're Hired, The Untold Success and Failures of a Populist President. Casey Mulligan has been our guest. Thank you, Casey. Good to talk with you, Michelle. Listen to this story that talks about the real problem beyond the pandemic is how we've handled the pandemic. 
There's no denying that the lockdown is saving lives, but behind closed doors up and down the country, people are struggling to cope. We've been contacted online by relatives who believe the lockdown may have led to the deaths of their loved ones. This message here reads, I'm 100% sure my partner would still be here if it wasn't for lockdown. Another, our son took his life in May and the coroner recorded that the lockdown played a significant role. The Royal College of Psychiatrists has told Sky News the number of people now experiencing severe mental illnesses has increased since the last lockdown. It certainly seems now that particularly in some parts of the country that the numbers of people presenting with acute mental illness has gone up and that the, the severity of the illness seems to have gone up as well. And I think these are people who have not had the sort of access to services that, uh, that they should have had. Samantha is still trying to make sense of her brother's death. She wants his story to save others who are feeling alone and isolated. Lisa, that came from Sky News. And another sad, sad story that talks about not just the despair we're feeling, but how it ties into COVID and where we're at today. This one is, it's heartbreaking, but you can feel their family's angst. When lockdown restrictions were announced in March, just four months later, 30-year-old Christopher Eildon, who had no history of mental health issues, had taken his own life. He died in hospital with his family by his side. And I was holding his hand and I, I was talking to him. I had a go at him. <laughs> Told him I loved him and I, I gave him a kiss on the head and I just laid my head on his chest and I just hearing his heart beating for the final time. I didn't want to leave that room, no. I didn't, I didn't want to leave him. This is grief amid a pandemic. Christopher worked as a paramedic and was a father of two. The lockdown, according to his sister, Samantha, affected his already fragile life. He was an NHS hero, paramedic. He was my hero. He always will be. Sorry. In the months before his death, Christopher posted a series of messages on Facebook about his struggles with the lockdown. The real pandemic is mental health, that people, especially the younger generation, are struggling with everything they've ever known has just been taken away and then there's a new set of rules. And that very sad story also came from Sky News. Today, My Michelle Live Health Watch takes on despair and finding a path through despair to hope for you and those you love. Dealing with uh, depression, clinical depression, anxiety, sometimes psychotropic drugs uh, seem to be the way that we're leading. But there have been widespread reports talking about the connection between psychotropic drugs, antidepressants and crime problems with the next generation. The statistics are staggering and it is being widely reported. Even study from PLOS Medicine that found young adults between 15 and 24. Do you know someone who's between 15 and 24? Take a listen. They were nearly 50% more likely to be convicted of homicide, assault, robbery, arson, kidnapping, sexual offense, other violent crimes when taking antidepressants. Oh, hello, is that not depressing? Our young people are suffering from depression, so give them antidepressants. Wait, put on the brakes. There's a problem with that. And here to take that on with us is Kelly Patricia O'Meara. She is with Citizens Commission on Human Rights. Now, she is an award-winning former investigative reporter for the Washington Times. And so glad to have you taking on this issue with us today, Kelly. 
Uh, thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be with you. Wow, what this is this is a big deal, and I cannot wait to share with the audience. And I will in a couple of minutes a, a book that you wrote that fits hand in hand with this big news story. Yeah, look, this is something that's coming out now. Every two or three months, we're seeing a, a new, very large study of the clinical trial data of health insurance information that people are, you know, combing through. What we're finding is, as you explained with the PLOS Medicine uh, study, that, you know, 15 to 24-year-olds are nearly 50% more likely to be convicted of, of crimes, violent crimes. So, so again, this goes hand-in-hand hand with what I've been writing about for almost two decades and what the Citizens Commission on Human Rights has been, you know, screaming from the rooftops for almost two decades, and that is that antidepressants cause abnormal behavior, they cause violence, um, they cause mania, hallucinations. There are a lot of really horrific side effects with these. And what we're finding now, um, after all these years of, you know, oh, give them an antidepressant, they're depressed, let's give them an antidepressant, what we're finding is that the drugs that are being given to these uh, children are actually more harmful than what they're experiencing in their depression. Oh, my goodness. So the cure is worse than the disease. Exactly. And yet we have an industry that is pushing it and pushing out any kind of alternative because, well, it's really a money-making business. Kelly Patricia O'Meara is with us. Now, this is her book, Psyched Out, How Psychiatry Sells Mental Illness and Pushes Pills that kill. Antidepressants aren't the only issue that you address. No, no, I cover it all. I think the thing that's important for all your listeners and whenever I do radio shows is for, it's really a two-pronged problem. First, we have the fraud of the diagnosis. Mm. Okay, all psychiatric diagnosing basically is subjective. There's no uh, medicine behind it. There's no science. In other words, you can't take a blood test or a urine test or an MRI or a CAT scan and find an abnormality that is any of these diagnoses, it's not possible. There is no such thing as a chemical imbalance um, in the brain that causes um, a mental illness. So that's the first part of the problem is that there's a fraud of psychiatric diagnosing. The second part, of course, is that the pharmaceuticals are supplying drugs that we now are finding um, repeatedly. In fact, I have to mention um, a very large study of 18,000 participants and basically what it shows is that antidepressants double the risk of aggression and suicide in children. Oh, my goodness. So, again, it's not only the fraud of the diagnosis, but then what they're doing is they're taking very, very serious, dangerous drugs and saying, here, well, this will treat this non-existent abnormality. There is no abnormality to treat, but it will, it will change your brain chemicals, because that's what it's supposed to do. These pills change your brain chemicals. No one has any idea what that does in the brain. And they, and they admit it. In fact, pharmaceuticals admit it you know, on, their, on the packaging, <laughs> that they don't know how their drug actually treats the you know, alleged abnormality. We've kind of become a, a nation that is about trying to treat a symptom instead of curing a, a, a problem. Yeah, again, you know, I'm not telling people that they're not depressed. Of course they're depressed to, to fraudulently tell people that their depression is because of an abnormality in their brain 
It doesn't exist. That's a lie. Now, there has been uh, brain imaging that can show issues where you may have had a brain injury, where you may have had something that's that's happened sometime in your life that's caused something's gone wrong we're that's talking a, about here. Yeah, that's a total different thing. I mean, certainly TBI, I mean, traumatic brain injury, we know we can do CAT scans and we can see that, you know, the people in the military who come home, that they're suffering from a TBI. We can see that. But if you look at all the studies that are that are done, and I actually have gotten into the to the to the point where I write to the authors of these studies, these brain studies, these scans that they do, and they say, oh, this is a child's brain, you know, who has ADHD, and this is one who doesn't have ADHD, and what they don't include in those studies repeatedly, I can write to them and they'll write back and they go, no, we didn't do it. They don't take into consideration the psychiatric drugs that these people have taken for years. Mm. So we don't know if the psychiatric drug caused the differences in the brain because they didn't take that into consideration. Psyched out how psychiatry sells mental illness and pushes pills that kill. Let me ask you, in your research for this book, what was maybe one of the most disturbing pieces of information you came across? (laughs) That's a tough question. There were so many. And hence the book. (laughs) I I think the thing that really is distressing to me when I wrote the book it's very difficult for anybody to accept that there is no science to psychiatric diagnosing. And that's one of the big issues that I address in the book is the fraud of the diagnosing because the drugging starts there. You can't get the drugs without the diagnosis. To do the things like you would if I looked at you and said, hmm, you look like you have heart disease. Well, we have tests for that. Well, psychiatry can't support a single psychiatric diagnosis as far as having any sort of science to back it up. And, you know, after 100 years, you think they might come up with some science. You may want to read the book. Thank you so much, Kelly, for being with us today. Thank you. Of course, we're not just going to leave you with some of the problems, some of the underlying problems that we haven't considered or even what we're doing wrong. You're getting it wrong, America. We've got some help for you. And as always on our Health Watch program, we look to some of the simpler things, maybe beyond just medication to tried and true methods that you may not have taken under consideration. That despair, the anxiety, the depression may be more than just circumstantial. It may be more than seasonal affective disorder. There may be a problem. But is it in your head? As we've been talking with Kelly, we are going to talk with an expert in an ancient kind of medicine that looks beyond what's in your head to the whole body. Today, my Michelle Live Health Watch takes on despair and finding a path through despair to hope for you and those you love. Dealing with uh, depression, clinical depression, anxiety, sometimes psychotropic drugs uh, seem to be the way that we're leading. But there have been widespread reports talking about the connection between psychotropic drugs, antidepressants and crime problems with the next generation. The statistics are staggering, and it is being widely reported. Even study from PLOS Medicine that found young adults between 15 and 24, do you know someone who's between 15 and 24? Take a listen. They were nearly 50% more likely to be convicted of homicide, assault, robbery, arson, kidnapping, sexual offense, other violent crimes when 
taking antidepressants. Oh, hello, is that not depressing? Our young people are suffering from depression, so give them antidepressants. Wait, put on the brakes. There's a problem with that. And here to take that on with us is Kelly Patricia O'Meara. She is with Citizens Commission on Human Rights. Now, she is an award-winning former investigative reporter for the Washington Times. And so glad to have you taking on this issue with us today, Kelly. Oh, thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be with you. Wow. what This is this is a big deal, and I cannot wait to share with the audience, and I will in a couple of minutes, a, a book that you wrote that fits hand-in-hand hand with this big news story. Yeah. Look, this is something that's coming out now. Every two or three months, we're seeing a, a new, very large study of the clinical trial data of health insurance information that people are, you know, combing through. What we're finding is, as you explained with the PLOS Medicine uh, study, that, you know, 15 to 24-year-olds are nearly 50% more likely to be convicted of, of crimes, violent crimes. So, so again, this goes hand-in-hand hand with what I've been writing about for almost two decades and what the Citizens Commission on Human Rights has been, you know, screaming from the rooftops for almost two decades, and that is that antidepressants cause abnormal behavior, they cause violence, um, they cause mania, hallucinations. There are a lot of really horrific side effects with these. And what we're finding now, um, after all these years of, you know, oh, give them an antidepressant, they're depressed, let's give them an antidepressant, what we're finding is that the drugs that are being given to these uh, children are actually more harmful than what they're experiencing in their depression. Oh, my goodness. So the cure is worse than the disease. Exactly. And yet we have an industry that is pushing it and pushing out any kind of alternative because, well, it's really a money-making business. Kelly Patricia O'Meara is with us. Now, this is her book, Psyched Out, How Psychiatry Sells Mental Illness and Pushes Pills that kill. Antidepressants aren't the only issue that you address. No, no, I cover it all. I think the thing that's important for all your listeners and whenever I do radio shows is for, it's it's really a two-pronged problem. First, we have the fraud of the diagnosis. Mm. Okay, all psychiatric diagnosing basically is subjective. There's no uh, medicine behind it. There's no science. In other words, you can't take a blood test or a urine test or an MRI or a CAT scan and find an abnormality that is any of these diagnoses. It's not possible. There is no such thing as a chemical imbalance um, in the brain that causes um, a mental illness. So that's the first part of the problem is that there's a fraud of psychiatric diagnosing. The second part, of course, is that the pharmaceuticals are supplying drugs that we now are finding um, repeatedly. In fact, I have to mention um, a very large study of 18,000 participants And basically what it shows is that antidepressants double the risk of aggression and suicide in children. Oh, my goodness. So, again, it's not only the fraud of the diagnosis, but then what they're doing is they're taking very, very serious, dangerous drugs and saying, here, well, this will treat this non-existent abnormality. There is no abnormality to treat, but it it will change your brain chemicals, because that's what it's supposed to do. These pills change your brain chemicals. No one has any idea what that does in the brain. And they, and they admit it. In fact, pharmaceuticals admit it, you know, on, their, on the packaging, <laughs> that they don't know how their drug actually treats the, you know, alleged abnormality. We've kind of become a, a nation that is about trying to treat a symptom instead of curing a, a, a problem. 
Yeah, again, you know, I'm not telling people that they're not depressed. Of course they're depressed to, to fraudulently tell people that their depression is because of an abnormality in their brain. It doesn't exist. That's a lie. Now, there has been uh, brain imaging that can show issues where you may have had a brain injury, where you may have had something that's, that's happened sometime in your life that's caused something's gone wrong that we're that's talking a, about yeah, here. Yeah, that's a total different thing. I mean, certainly TBI, I mean, traumatic brain injury, we know we can do CAT scans and we can see that, you know, the people in the military who come home that they're suffering from a TBI. We can see that. But... If you look at all the studies that are that are done, and I actually have gotten into the to the to the point where I write to the authors of these studies, these brain studies, these scans that they do, and they say, "Oh, this is a child's brain, you know, who has ADHD, and this is one who doesn't have ADHD." And what they don't include in those studies, repeatedly, I can write to them and they'll write back and they go, "No, we didn't do it." They don't take into consideration the psychiatric drugs that these people have taken for years. Mm. So we don't know if the psychiatric drug caused the differences in the brain because they didn't take that into consideration. Psyched out how psychiatry sells mental illness and pushes pills that kill. Let me ask you, in your research for this book, what was maybe one of the most disturbing pieces of information you came across? <laughs> That's a tough question. There was so many. And hence the book. <laughs> you know, I think I think the thing that really is distressing to me when I wrote the book, it's very difficult for anybody to accept that there is no science to psychiatric diagnosing. And that's one of the big issues that I address in the book is the fraud of the diagnosing because the drugging starts there. You can't get the drugs without the diagnosis. To do the things like you would if I looked at you and said, hmm, you look like you have heart disease. Well, we have tests for that. Well, psychiatry can't support a single psychiatric diagnosis as far as having any sort of science to back it up. And, you know, after 100 years, you think they might come up with some science. You may want to read the book. Thank you so much, Kelly, for being with us today. Thank you. Of course, we're not just going to leave you with some of the problems, some of the underlying problems that we haven't considered or even what we're doing wrong. You're getting it wrong, America. We've got some help for you. And as always on our Health Watch program, we look to some of the simpler things, maybe beyond just medication, to tried and true methods that you may not have taken under consideration. That despair, the anxiety, the depression, may be more than just circumstantial. It may be more than seasonal affective disorder. There may be a problem. But is it in your head? As we've been talking with Kelly, we are going to talk with an expert in an ancient kind of medicine that looks beyond what's in your head to the whole body. Aiding you against despair, anxiety, depression. We have a familiar voice joining us today. Robert Doan, founder and CEO of the Acupuncture Wellness Center. People come to study under him far and wide. And yet, he's making time for us today. It's good to have you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here, Michelle. Mental health is is difficult sometimes to diagnose. Is it a clinical issue? Is it uh, because of another clinical issue? Is it just a symptom? Is it temporal? Is it the winter blues? It's hard to put our finger on that. Yeah, it's very difficult because... um, in, in Western medicine, they assume if there's any kind of emotional uh, problems or problems with overthinking or negative thinking, they assume it's, it's, it's the, 
the disease originates in your head. And it's unfortunate because, of course, brainwave patterns are not produced just independent of the holistic functioning of your physiology. You know, it's not that the, the brain is separated from everything below the neck. The overall functioning of the physiology determines what type of brainwave patterns there are. And if the physiology is not working right, the brainwave patterns are not right. So people then will have very bad thoughts. Hmm. And uh, Western medicine goes after brain functioning or uh, chemical or imbalance in the brain using serotonin reuptake drugs or uh, trying to mess with dopamine and so forth. And it does have an effect, but it's not curative. You end up on the drugs forever. That's the problem. It is a problem, uh, though, as I said before, sometimes maybe needed. If someone's suffering from depression and popping a pill right now uh, can keep them from suicidal thoughts and save their lives, that's great. And I think that is where we need to celebrate Western medicine. Western medicine is amazing for emergency situations, for getting in, for saving lives, for uh, trauma. That is fabulous, but not always great where it comes to curative the problem is that drugs that the FDA has approved for depression, for clinical depression, are being basically misused by giving to people who have just mild anxiety problems. So they're giving you know drugs out to people who are a little depressed because their dad died a few years ago or something like that. Clinical depression, you're curled up in your bed with the lights off and you don't want to talk to anyone. And of course, these are the people who can do harm to themselves. But serotonin reuptake drugs, they're just giving out ubiquitously to almost anyone who has a slight anxiety issue. That's the problem. Robert Doan is with us. And Robert, when, as we talk about some of these things like anxiety, depression, stress, irritability, oftentimes they really are, as we were talking, symptoms of another problem. In Chinese medicine, if there's any restriction of blood flow into the walls of the heart, through the coronary arteries being either restricted by being blocked or a vasospasm where the coronary arteries are narrower, they're tight because they're a, they're a smooth muscle so they can contract or they can relax. If the coronary muscles are too contracted, which are called vasospasms, then there's a restriction of blood flow and nutrient flow and oxygen flow to the heart wall. In Chinese medicine, this can make a patient very anxious. They don't know it's happening, of course, but they experience the anxiety because the most important organ in the body is, of course, your heart. It's the emperor organ. And if the emperor is not being given enough nutrient, the entire kingdom, which is the human being, will feel very uneasy and very anxious. In Chinese medicine, if, they, if the individual or the patient has that kind of a heart issue, fixing that problem will take away the anxiety without having to resort to lifelong serotonin reuptake drugs. You can... Take medicine, and you can also be treated in some alternative forms at the same time to try it so that it's not just this abrupt and it's not this one or the other. Of course. If somebody comes to us, then we see over 100, anywhere from 100 to 120 people every day, five days a week. And we've been doing that for over 20 years. And when people come in and they want us to treat anxiety or depression, we try to find a more organic reason for it. Not something, not a chemical problem in the brain, but if they have fatty livers, if they have these uh, mild restrictions of blood flow into the heart wall, then we feel that we're in a position to help. And of course, we use Chinese herbs and we use Chinese acupuncture. And we never would have them come off their drugs until they feel a lot better 
through the Chinese medicine, and then in that stronger, happier state, with their doctor involved, then very slowly they start coming off of these drugs one at a time. Okay. And it's a, it's a process. Usually it takes us about five months to resolve some of these issues. But if we cannot find any organic reason for their body not functioning properly and brainwave patterns not functioning correctly, then then it might be that they have to take these drugs. But you are saying that anxiety and depression can be actual physical problems, a symptom of physical problems. You have to understand, and a big study was just done at um, Boston University Med School, and uh, they found that uh, they took 6,300 Americans and discovered that 60% of them have preclinical heart failure. So Americans are walking around with heart disease. And from a Chinese medical point of view, that causes anxiety. Not the knowledge of the heart disease, the actual physical problem itself. So a lot of people are walking around and, and of course, they feel overly anxious because they have this heart issue. And then, they, of course, they end up on these psychotropics. Western medicine hasn't yet figured out that a dysfunctional heart or a dysfunctional liver can cause anxiety and depression. And, but the Chinese figured that out a couple thousand years ago. See it clearly. It's a PhD waiting to happen because they have millions of case studies with people with heart murmurs. All they have to do is look on page you know, eight of the intake form and realize, oh, my God, these people with heart murmurs, 95% of them have anxiety. Wow. Our approach is to treat the heart and anxiety issues, and we find that depression is usually associated with the restriction of blood flow to the liver. And um, so we end up treating the depression usually as a liver problem, and we treat the anxiety as a heart problem. Anyone listening today dealing with anxiety, depression, or anything on that spectrum, that there may be more to the condition than, than, than meets the eye, than just the taking of pills that may not be working for you, that there may be hope. And I want to thank you very much for all that you all do at the Acupuncture Wellness Center to give hope to those who may have, be at the end of the rope. Well, you're more than welcome, Michelle, and good luck to everybody listening. Listen, we'll put a link to the Acupuncture Wellness Center. It may be worth a travel wherever you may be, but they may be able to connect you with someone that can help you in your area. We have a help for you, but you know who's being overlooked? Our teens. As we talk about despair today, I don't want to overlook what many of you may be experiencing in your household that may look like World War III. Well, Monday marked Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and I keep telling you, we have an anti-holiday as well that took place. It was called the saddest day of the year. And while um, studies have proven that maybe this the third Monday in January isn't any sadder than any other day in January, nonetheless, it brings attention to more than seasonal affective disorder, which is a real thing, but also to the epidemic beyond the pandemic of depression and anxiety. And it is hitting at alarming rate people that have been traditionally a little less subject to depression, and that's teens and young adults. 
I have with us, I you, I think you're going to love her. I We've talked just a matter of minutes, and I already feel like she's my friend, <laughs> Susan Burroughs. <laughs> she is a teacher, a project manager, and trainer in um, learning and development at the University of California. And she's written a book that's already earned several awards, including a 2020 Independent Press Award for Parenting and Family. It's a, an important book as well, very, very real. And that's what this program is today, I'm telling you. We're getting down to the real. It's called Off the Rails, One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction. Susan, thanks for hanging out with us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Michelle. I appreciate it. Uh, What a story Off the Rails is. This is Mm -hmm. getting into the real world of families dealing with teen addiction, uh, which is kind of a natural outpouring uh, when teens are dealing with anxiety, depression, uh, feeling a sense of disconnection. It certainly is. And you had mentioned January being uh, the saddest month. And I would like to add to that that December and January are actually known as relapse months. So those are times that those of us who have children in recovery are especially alert to any changes that we might see them going through. Yeah, and some of the changes, they're heart-wrenching. It is one of the deepest pains you will ever feel. Uh, If I could just give a little insight from the book, uh, from the mom's perspective, she said she watches an ugly bruise formed on her upper arm. She struggled to drive on a little narrow road, and her daughter, Hannah, uh, seemed like she was poised for battle in the passenger seat. Her, Her skin was a pale porcelain flushed with anger. And You can hear the pain in a mom's voice as she's saying her lovely long-fingered hands were still clenched, her pretty cherub lips in a permanent pout these days, and ready to scream. And she did. She said obscenities that would break any mother's heart. Spit came from her mouth. Uh, There was nowhere to turn over, nowhere to run, nowhere to escape. And you hear the angst. And what happened to my little girl? You know, who is mm-hmm. this woman child sitting next to me ready to ready to kill? Who is this monster? I think many parents have experienced that and maybe even more so during the pandemic, Susan. Uh, it's so true. And, and I, I'd like to say that even though this this book starts at a very critical place uh, in our lives with our children, Um, And it does have a lot of authentic language, for sure. Uh, But it's also a love story, you know, and it's a story about uh, caring through these bad times, uh, caring for each other and holding each other up. And I think that, um, you know, this is an extreme example in the book. But as you say, COVID has brought us to a place where we see these types of behaviors, we see more depression, because our teens feel things more deeply and completely than we do, just because of the uh, brain development, the stage of brain development that they're at. So we have a, a place where we feel ill-equipped as parents to deal with a mm-hmm. circumstance, a situation um, that is well beyond our uh, uh, what we ever dreamt for for our children, but that's where many of us are finding ourselves. Oh, certainly. Um, I know that many of us are crowded in a house together. Some of us have seen our college students uh, coming home for their learning, and they're dealing with boredom, with loneliness, with the 
isolation of taking online classes, some of them have lost their jobs and all of them have lost their rituals, right? So mm. there's no graduation. There's no 4th of July or first day of school <clears throat> if um, they're in high school. And so that, that 6% of people that have seasonal disorder um, is joined to that 14% of people who have the, the moodiness of, um, of January for the, the winter blues, as they call them. And in the end, you have one out of every five people are dealing with at least a light touch of depression during January, uh, more than that in our teens, just because, again, of, of who they are. Yes, because you can't look at a teen and not have experienced at least in some level uh, the hormonal changes that cause these moodiness and mm-hmm. the attitude and the the whole world is just a, a, a one eye roll away. <laughs> so Absolutely. add to that some of the, the issues that, that they're dealing with. How do they cope? Mm-hmm. And and then take the take COVID and then and and place that into the not only the season, but the tumultuous world in which we find ourselves at this moment. And you just have a perfect storm. So yeah, it's, it's so fantastic that you are that you're addressing this issue. And I'm, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners are are dealing with this right now. Yeah, I don't think it's it's uh, prudent to do a show talking about depression without getting to the nitty gritty of what's going on in our lives and being really real about it. We um, have to also address the shame of uh, depression and addiction that parents feel because you take that personally. Oh, absolutely. How can you not? And for us, we were rolling along. We have, you know, two working parents and two kids and everything was was quite um, boring, if you must know the truth. And then suddenly things just spiraled out of control. And uh, we did what many parents do is we stayed in denial. Uh, We didn't look closely enough to really see what was going on. And um, I will say, as you speak about depression, depression is often a trigger point that leads to self-medication. And then for us, the self-medication led to misdiagnosis, which led what led to drugs, which led to overdose. So it can be uh, just a dominoes effect, uh, depression leading to, to drug use. And we know that out of all the drugs that our kids have access to, um, alcohol is readily available. And we know now that, um, that 20% of our kids, uh, again, one in five, are, are drinking regularly. And that's between, that's younger than you might think, too. That's between the ages of 12 and 20. Oh, my goodness. So we don't, Hello. right? So we don't want to see it, but I, I hope that we will see it and we will address it. And we will also support each other, take the stigma away, because 85% of us either have a kid who is involved in alcohol or uh, other substance abuse or high-risk behaviors, or we know somebody in our own families or in our neighbors' families, our friends' families, 85%. So this seems like something maybe we shouldn't be ashamed of. Maybe we should help each other and support each other 
in getting to the other side. And, and try to understand <clears throat> that this is an across-the-board problem dealing with the angst, dealing with, and, and when you're looking at addiction, almost entirely, it, it can start at recreationally, but for the most part, people are self-medicating for a number of reasons, be it anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. frustration, uh, the angst. Imagine, put yourself in, in the shoes as as you have for us, Susan, uh, all of the things that have been part of our society for our lifetimes, for your lifetime and mine, Susan, uh, the graduation, the baccalaureates, the proms, all of those things are gone. Life has turned upside down for kids and for a adults as well and yet we're we also have still have a stigma surrounding um depression and anxiety and the not perfect uh, facebook perfect uh, social media perfect family mm-hmm. so I, I appreciate your book because it's a real inside look it's a real raw look into a family's journey yeah and i'm so happy that you brought up social media because that is such a just a dark mirror. You know, there's really no seeing to the other side. You only see what people want you to see. And I think that makes teens feel sadder if they don't have the same happy photos and the same adventures and the same claims of complete and utter joyous lives. Then they feel as though they're lacking somehow themselves. So that's so important. So in your experience, even in your the experience that you share in Off the Rails, what can you give us today? What Someone's listening and saying, that's me, that's my family help. Well, I, I think for all of us, with our kids and with each other, I think that this is an, an unprecedented time. I know you've probably heard that term quite a lot in this last year, but I think because of that, We can't make any assumptions. We have to be alert and uh, be emotionally emotionally intelligent about each other's feelings. And I think it's so important that we don't invalidate our teens when they come to us and tell us that they are feeling sad. Sometimes the, the immediate response is, what do you mean you have it sad? You have a roof over your head, you have plenty of food. Uh, You have friends that you can see online, and that's not helpful. They feel unseen and invalidated. So the first thing is to listen well um, and also uh, try to encourage distance from the people and the social media that can trigger them, encourage them to maybe uh, limit their use or at least be cognizant of it uh, and um, encourage self-care with nutrition and exercise, um, also finding ways to interact safely with their friends and uh, having events online and uh, also distraction, I think. So if you can find uh, something for them to focus on that gives them the same kind of uh, passion that maybe some of their old activities used to. So, um, Yes. My younger daughter is uh, is a reader, and she made a list of 100 books. And that's what she's been doing. So it doesn't have to be zip lining or rock climbing, uh, but it can be something that allows them to focus on something that will help them feel as though they're growing. Something that can 
go to a deeper level is the idea that the greatest happiness is somebody else's. So in dealing with depression, anxiety, frustration, finding ways that you can help others, to esteem others greater than yourselves, to be a, a conduit of grace and goodness to the people around us. This is a time where, where everyone on one degree or another is hurting, frustrated, anxious, or fearful. If we can be a conduit of change and a conduit of, of love, to me, it's a deeper story. It's kind of a God story. I'd like your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I think that's lovely. And I'm a proponent of giving each other grace all the time. We never know what somebody else is is dealing with uh, in their own life, behind their own doors, or even internally. Uh, I would also encourage everybody to to know of some resources. So if you are concerned about somebody, you know, helping them um, find, in the case of self-harm, maybe the suicide prevention number, just making sure that they have the resources that they need to move forward in a healthy way or um, letting them know that there are online uh, AA meetings if they seem to be, as I said, January and February, or excuse me, December and January are relapse months. If they seem to be shaky, reminding them that there are resources for them and and also um, uh, local therapy uh, for, for your kids. I, I think that, um, you know, for me, I call it better than a spa day. <laughs> so somebody that has to listen to you and um, give you the opportunity to just get everything off your chest. So I do encourage that. And I encourage uh, if the situation gets extreme, I do encourage uh, parents to also go to therapy so that they can learn to speak the same language as their child and to uh, work through um, to work through these issues together. I love but that. above all, as you say, you know, love and faith, understanding and grace uh, are just the underpinnings of all of those practical um, movements that you can make. I like it. In our own lives, what I hear you saying is that we need to take on the issue of addiction and depression and the underlying things that are plaguing us emotionally and mentally as seriously as we're taking this pandemic. And I want to thank you for being part of the solution. I think one of the things that that you can do is pick up Susan's book, Off the Rails, One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction. It's very powerful. And it's been a great uh, 20 minutes with you. Thank you, Susan. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure. Just to show you how hard it is for teens. This is becoming a national epidemic as well. Listen to this story from NBC. The statistics are startling. We're getting a new look at the toll the coronavirus is taking on our mental health. A recent study by the Centers for Disease Control found that 25% of 18 to 24-year-olds, that's one in four, reported considering taking their own life as a result of the COVID pandemic. A lot of um, youth are feeling very isolated from their families. They're feeling very isolated from their communities, from school, and a lot of anxiety just due to this level of uncertainty, not knowing what's going to come next or where it's 
to find the answers. Not knowing whether they're going to have prom or what college will look like has been a struggle for young people. People just are upset with their parents. It's, you know, the little things that kind of nip at you all day and aren't able to necessarily go to therapy, like the therapists and psychiatrists right now. And, you know, sometimes those are just the things you need to just talk about the little things. Skylar Rivera is a warm line operator for Join Rise B, which is a peer-to-peer hotline. There's also fear of COVID. You know, it eats away the thought of, oh, what if I do have it? And yeah, it definitely just feeds into everything because we're already dealing with, you know, our mental health issues and things like that. Just to bring what Susan was saying home, some of the choices that we're making can make a difference. This is no longer about good health for teens. This may be about saving your teen's life. This comes from the Mayo Clinic, Lisa. Yes, and in this time during COVID with kids being stuck at home, online learning, I think this news story is particularly important. Technology like laptops and smartphones and social media all play an important role in the lives of our teens. They're using it to learn in the classroom and out of the classroom. But it's outside the classroom where too much social media may lead to social problems. Dr. Matke says kids learn to become passive engagers. They're watching everyone else's Instagram, but they're not engaging. And so they're losing that out in that social connection. And the more technology teens consume, we see increased rates of depression. Electronic screens can also disrupt sleep. And a lack of good sleep can result in depressed mood, moodiness, and irritability. It can affect the hormones in their brain via the blue light that's, that comes off of these screens. Balance the amount of recreational screen time with other important things like exercise, sleep, or engaging with others. Encourage shutting screens down at least an hour before bedtime and set a rule of no screens in the bedroom. If they are getting texts or messages that are coming through all night long, that's going to be interrupting their sleep. My Michelle Live. Health Watch. She's writing a prescription for hope. Here's Michelle. Thank you, big voice guy. Wow, this is an interesting time of the year because Monday, as you've heard us say today, Monday was a holiday, but it was also an anti-holiday. Beyond celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. and his words and remembering, even learning from his words, the anti-holiday Blue Monday. It's been deemed the saddest day of the year, of course, but it does bring a highlight to a problem. We are seeing the highest levels of anxiety and depression reported since the pandemic hit nearly a year ago. We are still in a place where we don't really understand anxiety and depression, to be honest. But there is a new book by a friend, and you may recognize his voice. He's been on with us several times, Paul Acey. And while I've spoken to him many times, he's as a movie uh, critic, a television reviewer, uh, he's written books on pop culture that can bring the craziest subject matter and fictional characters, like superheroes, into life-changing focus. Dude could spiritualize, and I say this about Paul and Paul alone, he could spiritualize Bert Toast and make you go, wow, yeah, there's something deep there. It's true. But in his latest book, you may never experience anything so raw and honest and even very personal. Um, He's tasted and walked through depression. And I think of depression sometimes as walking death. He's experienced that and he's sharing it. There is a superhero in this story. There really is a hope. There really is. 
that's why we're doing this today for you or someone you love. So welcome, Paul. Wow, that was quite the lead-in. Thank you so much. I, I kind of miss being, you know, called Plugged In Paul by you. I, I just, <laughs> but it just doesn't feel appropriate for this book, does it? It's more like <laughs> pensive Paul or pouty Paul. I don't know. Um, oh, man. Yeah, the seeing an, a, a side of you in your book, Beauty and the Browns, Walking with Christ in the Darkness of Depression. Um, more than depression, uh, people suffer from labels and denial. And sometimes it's not just something you say, hey, Michelle, how's it going? Well, before we do this movie, just want to let you know I suffer from depression. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, awkward. <laughs> Yeah, that, and that's one of the issues about depression, right? It's it's one of those things that you don't you don't necessarily want to talk about it if you're depressed. You don't necessarily want to hear about it if you're not depressed. It's a very awkward conversation stopper, you know, in a lot of ways. And uh, that was one of the reasons why I kind of wrote this book. It was it was a really interesting and at times really difficult journey to to write this thing. Um, but I also kind of felt like sometimes we, and I mean, when I say we, I mean, especially me, we're not as honest as we should be about some of the issues that we deal with. Um, I think even in, and sometimes even especially within the Christian church, I think Come that sometimes on. we can. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, nice that you were, you were really gentle around that subject, but uh, come on, you want to be honest like I do. I I don't think it's the time anymore uh, for people to be uh, apologists for the church. And God is an ass, doesn't need any apologies. So we need to be raw and real. And that's what your book is. And so I appreciate it. And I also appreciate you being really polite about it. But I think it's time that we just take the gloves off and say that one of the most <laughs> damaging places traditionally for people suffering from depression has been the church. I think that that really is true. I think that that it, it's really ironic because it, it, theoretically the church should be a place where you can let it all sort of hang out. But, but I think that that's not often the case um, in church and sometimes especially the branch of church that I, I tend to associate with the, the evangelical church. There's, there's a reserve there. Um, and more more insidiously, I would say, is that that sometimes this issue of depression can be sort of a very difficult <clears throat> one for the church to deal with. Um, you deal with these these emotions, these really negative emotions that can lead people who experience them in in really kind of a hopeless place. And that seems to a lot of Christians very antithetical to what Christianity is all about. I mean, we've been given this incredible hope in Jesus, right? He's given us literally the good news. How can you be hopeless? How can you be depressed when you're facing that? And yet, you look at the stats, and Christians are just as depressed as as the general public. Um, they suffer from it almost nearly as at, at the same rate. Sometimes, um, if they're dealing with particular issues in their lives, if they're dealing with family issues or or kid issues, the the rates can be even higher because the guilt is so much more. Um, so it becomes a very difficult issue for the church to deal with because it seems an antithetical to what. Christianity is supposed to be all about. 
Yeah, and yet Christianity should be about being real, and that's why we get real. And I have to tell you, along these lines, uh, you make me kind of uncomfortable. And I just want to call you out <laughs> as a friend here, Paul, because um, I laughed out loud many times reading this book. Thank you, Paul. Do you realize how awkward it is when you're reading a book and you're laughing and someone says, oh, what did, what's your book about? Uh, depression. <laughs> and you know, it, it was like an example. This was one of the things that I laughed out loud about in your book because I totally got it. Um, you were talking about Christian music. Your wife likes Christian music. You turn on Christian music in the car and it's happy and it's uplifting, yada, yada, yada. But you, but you literally say, uh, but 30 of them together feel like propaganda be happy no really be happy or else the dj will hunt you down (laughs) that's kind of along the lines of what we're talking about it seems like okay yeah be uplifted but doesn't it sometimes seem a little out of touch it does seem, at least to me, it does. You know, and I, I know that a lot of times when you have these Christian radio stations playing this this very inspirational, very peppy music, it's designed to get people happy. You know, it's if they're dealing with something bad, then this music is designed to cheer them up. But man, sometimes it just takes more than a song. Sometimes you just need to actually sit down with somebody and talk or cry or complain or or something, you know, sometimes it just doesn't feel real. You know, you talk about you talk about Disneyland, Disney World, happiest place on earth. I love Disney World. I really love going there. But we know that it's all artificial. You go in, you spend your money, and you go there um, to experience, you know, a, a good time. But it's not real. It's not real life. And sometimes I think that we can get caught up in Christianity with the idea that we are supposed to be the happiest people on earth. Sometimes I just don't think that's realistic. I I think that that does a disservice to not only the people who are suffering, who might not feel like smiling all the time, but I think it does a disservice to people outside the faith who are trying to to figure out what Christianity is all about because it it can feel false. It can feel like we're selling a, a false bill of goods. And I don't think that's healthy for anybody. You are absolutely right. So I wanted to, from your perspective, you've walked through depression and it is uh, it's a battle for the rest of your life it's like what some people i think refer to as you know when they deal with substance abuse you know sometimes you have to battle with it here and there for the rest of your life Um, and i understand that but what we don't understand on the outside is what depression is and what it is not because one of the one of the most uh, troubling things one of the most destructive things is stigma and ignorance that surrounds depression help us yeah it's a it's a difficult thing to put into words and i i have to say that as i was writing the book it was a challenge to figure out how to how to bring that to life if you will for for people who who don't experience it and and for me dealing with i i sort of deal with michelle sort of a, a mild to moderate chronic depression i've had periods of 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 deep severe depression in my life but those thankfully have been fairly rare but i do deal with it pretty much every day um on some level and for me, the comparison, the best comparison that I can come up with is that it feels a little like static. Depression isn't necessarily being mopey. It's not necessarily feeling sad all the time. It's really feeling 
like you're distant sometimes from your own own emotions. Now, now sometimes when you are depressed, you do feel a deep, deep sense of sadness. You can feel like you're grieving all the time, but oftentimes you feel a deadness inside. And I compared it to, I'm, I'm old, right? So I grew up in an age before streaming services. I, I had three (laughs) television stations on um, at at my, my house. And and I'm just kidding. I know. I I know it's the ancient of days. (laughs) (laughs) It's the ancient of days. What was Jesus like, Paul? (laughs) (laughs) Did you really communicate through smoke signals? What's up with that? No, but it was it was sort of one of those things where I would come home from school, I'd flip on the TV, I'd want to watch some cartoons or something after after going to elementary school, and we only had one of the stations that had the best cartoons was always a little staticky. You would just see these these black and white ants crawling all over the picture, and sometimes it would be you could almost see the picture pretty well. And then sometimes you could barely see it at all. And and that's sort of what I feel like depression feels like to me, is that on good days, I feel a little bit distant from the world around me. I can I can I can operate reasonably effectively. I can deal with the people around me. But there are days when sometimes the static just feels so overwhelming. It, it can be so hard to interact with the world. It can be very, very hard to just push through that and to and to meet your deadlines, to interact with people in a meaningful way. You just wanna you just wanna curl up and, and wait for that, that static to go away. You just wanna, you know, hide under your covers or something like that. But in this world of ours, you just don't have an opportunity to do that. So you you try to do the best you can. So, uh, hence, that makes your title make sense, Beauty in the Browns, how you can find Christ and walk with Christ in the darkness of depression. And for those of us on the outside, it is really difficult because we associate a kind of a stigma. Um, and it's easy, you know, going back to the church, and it's not just the church, it's the world. You know, we'll just choose to be happy or uh, just just feel better, and even just the well wishes of, well, feel better or be happy there is um, a, a kind of disconnect there. It's kind of like going to someone who who is suffering from a, a disease or let's say has cancer and say, well, just feel better. You know, well, yeah. yeah, if I could, I surely would. Thank you very much. Or even saying you, this is the hurtful thing. And I hope as you're listening today, you have not heard these words. You just don't have enough faith. Right. Right. And that did happen to me. You know, Ouch, it was a yes. it was a really difficult thing where where you you have people, well meaning people, who process depression as sort of a manifestation of a lack of faith or even a sin. You know, you are you are disconnected from God. You are somehow um, separate. And that is the very last thing that a depressed person wants to hear or needs to hear because <laughs> that is one of the big problems about being depressed, right? If you're if you're a faithful Christian and you feel that separation from God, you feel that distance. And as a as as someone who is just starting to to delve into these issues, you know, years ago, I wondered whether 
I would look at my my Christian friends who seemed to feel like God was sitting on their shoulder or standing right next to them. They seemed to have this very, very close connection with God. And for me, I, I very, very rarely feel that sort of connection. It's it, Again, it's the static. And, and so sometimes I would ask myself, am I doing something wrong? Or is there something wrong with me? Because that's where you end up going. You end up thinking, even though you've been taught throughout all of your Sunday school years that God loves you, God loves you just the way you are. When you expect to feel a certain way, and when your Christian friends tell you you should feel a certain way, then all of a sudden, you begin to wonder what's wrong with you. You begin to wonder whether, no matter what the Sunday school lessons have, have told you, whether God just can't love you. And, and that can be a really, really difficult thing when you're, when you're looking for connection, when you're looking for hope as it is, when you feel that, that God has left you, um, that God can't commune with you in, in the same way, that can be a very, very difficult thing and can throw you into into a deeper sort of depression. It's just hard. Yeah. Thank you very much, friends of Job. You know, it's, a, it, yeah. it's really, thank you. <laughs> and if you, you know, that's like a little biblical reference. There's a story in, in the entire book of Job. Dude has had the hardest life in the history of all mankind. Nothing has touched it since, right? And what does he have but these awesome friends that come around him and just say, you know, and say, hey, Job, we're right here with you. We're going to go through. No, they don't say that. They basically say, well, gee, you don't have enough faith. What's wrong with you? God hates you. Thank you. Just what I need to do here. (laughs) Hallelujah. That's great. I feel much better better now why don't you be on your way thank you but here we are dealing with depression on a an epic scale i mean depression and anxiety are much more of an epidemic than even the coronavirus and still we as a general public don't often understand it and that's one of the reasons you wrote this book and you write it so raw and so real and so honest talking about your daily struggle that you, one moment you can be talking with people like you are right now and the next moment dark thoughts just overtake you it is sort of surprising how that can happen you know and and one of the things Michelle, you and I have talked a great deal, and, and I have never wanted to be. One of the challenges to, to writing this book is is risking the, you know, the becoming the depressed person. Oh, that's labels. Paul. He's yeah. depressed. Exactly where that becomes your defining characteristic, and it can be that's something that I was very very aware of as I was writing, and I never wanted to be kind of quote unquote the depressed person. I wanted to be the funny person who talks about movies. You know, that's that's what I have always longed to do. But it can be really tricky, and to to sort of engage in in some of these these. These things that we deal with as depressed people, it can be very difficult to sort of push out of that. And I find, you know, I've, I've worked a lot on, on some tricks, some tips to, to actually sort of help push me through that and keep me able to operate and to be the person who I want to be, um, including in, in conversations like this. You know, I, I'll be totally honest with you, Michelle. Sometimes sometimes when I go to work, sometimes when I find myself needing to do interviews for, for movies or whatnot, it's the last thing I want to do. I, I get super worked up about it because it's just, 
I, I feel like I can't I can't even come up with a coherent thought, much less less talk to an audience about something that they want to hear about. Hey, that's and me every day. So- I get you. At least on that point. <laughs> Like, why, why am I doing this of all people? <clears throat> but I hear you, Paul, that, that uh, it's, it's debilitating. And mm-hmm. yet, yeah. some of your journey also includes hope that you found. You have stories. You have motivation. You dedicated your book to one of the motivating factors to help you find a hope beyond yourself. And you also touch on something that is so important, the difference between happiness and joy. And if I could just uh, glean something from your book, you've said, I've heard it described as the difference between pursuing holiness and happiness. Christians don't need to feel happy all the time to feel a sense of rooted purpose driven joy. I think that's kind of, that's cool, but um, can you expound on that? Talk to us about happiness and joy. If you are experiencing depression, you are not happy. You're not feeling happy. How do you have joy? That seems like an oxymoron. It is tricky. I will tell you that right now. <laughs> and, okay. Then. And to be honest with you, <laughs> when when you're in the teeth of depression, it can be really hard to feel even that sense of joy. I think that 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 it's it's just a difficult road to walk. But for me, I think the difference is between happiness, like. We live in a society that encourages us and actually insists that we should be happy all the time. You know, we have all these material possessions. We have all these distractions. We are told constantly through commercials that we can have it all. When you're depressed, one of the one of the realizations that I think I've sort of grown to understand walking through this depression is that you can't have it all. You can't feel happy all the time. It's just not realistic. All of us have different struggles that we deal with. If you're not depressed, you might have anxiety issues. You might be dealing with family issues. We all have some really difficult things that we have to deal with. Those things can be a challenge for us. Um, And yet, I think if we pursue them and pursue them bravely, we can find a sense of purpose. We can find a sense of joy. When I think about my own life, when I feel discouraged or hopeless or on the verge of despair, I I find myself trying to look for things where I can make a difference, where I can write a really good movie review, where I can where I can touch a friend in a special way, um, where I can even just the, the day-to-day stuff that we all do for our families. We make dinners. We shovel the driveways. We water our plants. What would my house plants be without me if I didn't water them? You know, you find this sense of purpose by reaching out as much as you can and helping others. That, I think, is where a sense of joy can really come from. You find that even if you feel that you don't have that sense of of happiness that you might want, ideally. You can know that you're making a difference in people's lives if you push and and try to help them through the difficulties they're they're trying to deal with. I've I've found that one of the things that, that actually helps me the most is looking out, not in. When you're depressed, you find yourself curling inward, being obsessed with your own thoughts, thinking, oh my goodness, my life is so awful. 
But when you have a chance to reach out and to help somebody deal with what they're dealing with, all of a sudden it brings a little bit more perspective to what you might be suffering from. And it brings a little bit of hope and joy to somebody around you. And that ability to give, that ability to reach out and help somebody else, that can be a tremendous salve for for what we deal with when we're depressed, I think. Um, now, again, it's, it's very tricky because when you're in the teeth of depression, you just don't want to do anything. But when you can try to help other people because that's that's a big thing that's a big conduit to feeling better in your own life i think okay so uh, what i'm enjoying is in this conversation taking it from two perspectives you are taking it from a perspective of this is what i've needed and this is what can help you if you're in depression and what i also want to look at is what i can do as someone who loves someone who suffers from depression, how I can uh, be part of their purpose, something that uh, uh, instead of being Job's friends, I can be <laughs> a, a, I can be a helper or I can I can need, show them that the, that I need them, that they are important to me, that I mean, there are things that I can do as well, sometimes just being there. Sometimes just being mm-hmm. there. Give me some more thoughts, can you? Because there, there is someone listening right now who is, who is saying, I feel helpless. I am watching this downward spiral and I feel helpless. I don't have the words. I don't know what to do. Yeah. And, and I think that's the key in some ways is, is you don't have to have the words. Just as you say, being there can be tremendously helpful depressed people are not always that much fun to be around. I mean, it it sort of goes by the definition, right? You just, you are depressed and it it can be kind of a downer to to be with people who who are suffering in that way. When you are with somebody in that moment, it can be a little like a lifesaver, you know, a thrown lifesaver. People who are depressed inherently feel deeply alone. And when you know that you're not completely alone, when there's someone who will walk beside you, that's tremendously helpful. More important than talking is 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 listening. I I think that that oftentimes depressed people are not in a position where they can hear a lot of advice. And I think that when you try to give pat answers or cliches or whatever, um, propaganda, more of that propaganda. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, and for some people it really works. I mean, sometimes the propaganda works. Let's, let's face it. I've, I've listened to a happy song and felt better afterwards, but I think when you are depressed, that can all feel like propaganda. It can feel like snake oil. And we know deeply that the answers aren't easy. And it's not just a matter of cheering up. So to listen to somebody as they're going through this, to really listen to them and, and to listen non-judgmentally, I think is a really important thing. Um, don't, don't retreat. Don't move away lean in, lean forward, try to help people in that way. I think that that's, that's really a key. And then be really cognizant of, of the signals that you get. I, I write in my book that, that as I was going through one of my periods of, of deep depression, one of the things that got me out was actually my wife being totally loving and totally forgiving and totally supportive. And yet she said to me, one day, 
I don't know whether to give you a big hug or a kick in your butt. And sometimes, sometimes you need that kick to get out of your funk. You just need to have that little propulsion, that encouragement to get off the couch, to get out of bed, to take a shower. Sometimes a well-placed word that, you know what, it's time to get moving now. That's not a bad thing either. But you have to be cautious about that and, and be mindful of the right time to do it. It makes sense, and it goes along something you talk about in your book, a belonging. When you're experiencing depression, how you can feel isolated, you can feel that you're not good enough, you can experience tremendous guilt. So just knowing that you're belonging, understanding that you go to a deeper belonging, a belonging to God, belonging to Christ, uh, but I can be that conduit on earth. As a person who supports and loves someone with depression, reminding them that they belong to something bigger than just themselves. So that's important. Um, Absolutely. I, I also want yeah. to talk to the person who loves someone who has depression, that sometimes it can it can be an abusive situation. That's not okay. That's You absolutely need some help in, in that case. And getting help, getting counseling for someone who isn't suffering from depression, but is in a relationship with someone, a child, a spouse, that's important too, because it, it, it can be really difficult. And you know, the, you don't have to just buck up, you need help. And that's okay. It's absolutely okay. But that sense of belonging also is okay, letting them know that I'm getting help because I love you and I want to be a, a, a support to you. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right, Michelle. And I think I wanted to, to, to mention again, to, to re-stress, if you will, that idea of counseling. I mean, during this time, during the epidemic that we have all are so familiar with, um, rates of depression, as you noted, are just going through the roof. And a lot of times you're dealing with, with friends, with family members, with your own children that are dealing with anxiety or depression. Not only... I think I think counseling can be a huge very very helpful tool for for people to to sort of deal with their emotions their process what they're going through it it's it can be really a lifesaver and and to to get some of that professional help uh can be just a tremendous conduit to actually getting better the the interesting thing about depression is that it's very very treatable People have found that they they can really deal with depression well through counseling, through sometimes medication, through some of the some of the tools that that I've sort of developed over the years. Those can be good tools as well. But the thing is, so few people actually get diagnosed with depression. They say that uh, the the rates of 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 depression as high as they are are likely even higher because many people are just unwilling um, or feel weird about getting help. So get help. You know, it's it's really important to just go and get help to try to figure out how to get yourself on a on a level playing field again. Yeah, indeed. I appreciate that. And for you, some of the tools you share in your book, I appreciate the the again, the honesty in Beauty in the Browns. What a title. You finding beauty in the midst of depression, and it is possible. It is possible to find a way through the darkness. When in depression, it's uh, I've heard it said that it's like being at the bottom of the barrel looking up with no ladder to get out. So finding that beauty with a walk with Christ 
Can you share that? Because you do share it in a way where it doesn't seem bubblegum hope. You know, Jesus loves you and everything's just fine. This is raw. This is gritty. This is real. And that's the kind of Jesus I think we need in this environment that we're all experiencing a little bit of the Browns. Yeah, I, I think that that's really true. I, I I know that that even people who are not clinically depressed. I was just talking with a friend of mine actually, who who is telling me, you know, I keep telling people I'm okay, but I'm not exactly sure what that means anymore. We're we're all just. It feels like we're just on the edge of some sort of collective cultural breakdown in a way, and and so it can be really really difficult to to walk through that time because it's miserable, and I'm. Not going to lie to you, Michelle, walking through depression, depression, when you are in a depressive episode, it is horrible. It is terrible. But what I think I've found is that, like, like Paul's thorn, you know, I, 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 I find that depression has given me something. It has given me a sense of humility it has given me a, a need to trust more. Um, one of the things that, that I think in our society, we, we tend to lean on ourselves so much, and we're encouraged in America to, to, to really pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to, to push on, and, and, and there's merit to that. And yet the Bible tells us to lean on God. And one of the things that I've found during depression is that I have to lean on God. It puts me in a place of dependence. And I think that that's really important. It has given me an ability to see some of the more subtle beauties that we can often miss in our harried society. The ability to to really appreciate those moments of light and wonder when they come, because for me, they can be so rare. Um, the title actually comes from uh, just a vignette when I was a kid. All of my family comes from the San Luis Valley in Colorado, which sounds really lovely for people who are not in Colorado. But but <laughs> if you live here, you know that the San Luis Valley is dry and cold, and and it can be a really harsh place. You know, the the essentially winter lasts for like seven months of the year there, and. I remember as a kid going for a walk with my dad, who's an artist, in November or February or something when everything was brown and dead and wind was cold and it was miserable. And I was walking with my dad and my dad says, man, isn't this beautiful? Look at all the browns. Being an artist, he had an appreciation for the ability to see the variances in those browns, the textures, the really subtle colors. And when I think about how depression has impacted me, it feels like I have been given... This is going to sound really strange, Michelle, but in in a way, it makes me feel as if I've been given a gift where I can see some of the beauties in the hardness of life. It's your superpower, Paul. (laughs) it is it's your superpower you know oftentimes our superpowers can be as debilitating as they are super but your superpower helps you see the world like other people can't but it also helps you to reach in and rescue and hear people and and hear a heart that's aching that 
other people and their happy, happy, joy, joy kind of miss. And there isn't Jesus good. Uh, you know, they kind of miss because you know what the struggle is. It is your superpower. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I it, it is a terrible superpower. I would much rather be invisible or fly or something. But yeah, I like invisibility. Yeah, you could be a superhero <laughs> and your power. What what power would you like, really? <laughs> oh my goodness! You know that's that's a really good question. I uh, I think invisibility would be cool. I think. Um, but I do think just to fly would be pretty nice I because know, right? I think sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's just nice to feel like you can fly away from the troubles of this world and soar above them all because the ability to fly gives you a new perspective on what you see. And, and, you know, it's kind of nice to, to skip the, uh, the, uh, security lines at the airport too. <laughs> Wouldn't that be good? I, I want to thank you really for using that that power. The and that's when we have these difficulties, whatever it is that we're struggling with. Um, you mentioned the scripture in the book that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. There is a purpose. There's a purpose sometimes in the pain. Sometimes we even get to see it. Sometimes we get to see it lived out. And I think in your story, this book is one of the ways that we can see that that purpose is coming to fruition. And I. I loved your book. I loved your book. Aside from people giving me the look as, why are you laughing? Reading a book on depression, <laughs> that awkward moment. But we're friends. I can forgive that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Michelle. I really appreciate it. The book's Beauty in the Browns. And anywhere you are listening to this podcast, click on the link and you can get the book and share it. Uh, get it. Share it. This this program's important. So listen, share it. Let people know there is hope. There's a deeper hope. There's a deeper hope in the God story. Thanks, Paul, for being with us. My pleasure, Michelle. Always great to talk with you. Hopefully we can talk about something more fun next time. I had fun. <laughs> <laughs> I did, too. I did, too. These are great conversations to have. This has been such an important topic today. Maybe like me, as you're doing this program, you have someone in mind that you know that you love that is dealing with anxiety, depression, and the despair of the day. Let's see what we can do to make a difference and bring hope. Like this show, share this show, uh, be part of what we're doing on My Michelle Live. You can support this program with a GoFundMe. You can make a difference. We can all make a difference. That's what we're all about. Thanks for being with us today. More Health Watch at MyMichelleLive.com.